This episode is part one of a series on public education in America. This particular episode is the initial discussion on student loans, including a discussion on the recent Supreme Court case. Further episodes in this series aim to explore the cultural and political climate in regards to public education and solutions and ideas to the debt crisis and education reform. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. This is Always Remember The Mod State Podcast. And now, your hosts. Others may hate you. Well, good morning to you. Um, to whoever whoever else is listening, whatever time it is. How are you? Um, doing all right. Excellent. Doing all right. I have a cup of coffee, so we're good to go. It's actually a, a difference. Um, maybe not the beverage of choice during our evening podcasts, uh, but it is nice. Cheers. I've got my cup of coffee here as well. Mm. Good, good. Um, well, I think we've got a good one today. I did receive some feedback uh, that some listeners wanted to hear a more uh, topic oriented episode and i totally agree and i think we're due for one and we were talking about a few potential topics we were throwing out there and it seemed like student loans was one of them that kept coming back and i i think before we get started on this episode you know a couple things up front i i do hold um significant student loans i did have my undergrad paid for so I dodged a bullet there. Um, I also chose a specific university that I knew would be more expensive than a traditional public school. Also something I understand. I think in this conversation, it is less about what I owe and my personal feelings towards student loans um, than it is my concern collectively, I suppose. Um, and I think the other caveat to this is I am not a student loan expert. I am not but I think given the fact that it, it's in front of the Supreme Court that I do, I mean, up front, I think there's probably, regardless of what happens with the student loans at the Supreme Court level, there will likely be um, some positive changes uh, to the broader uh, public that holds student loans that I think will be worth talking about. Um, what are your thoughts initially? Because I know we've gone up and down. We've had lots of good mm-hmm. discussion about this. Uh, I would have to say that, for the record, I am also someone who holds uh, about a similar amount of student loan debt. I did choose to do two years of community college and ended up paying that off. And then I went on to get a a bachelor's and a master's, and now I'm looking at law school. So mm-hmm. I'm. You're this staring... is also pretty close to home for me. <laughs> I was gonna. You're, you're definitely staring down the barrel of of significant. Um, you know, it, it's funny we call it debt, but we also call mortgage debt as well. But it's it's a different kind of debt. It's not a credit card debt. I think there's an ROI uh, attached to it that I think is a bit different. But um, before we dive Absolutely. in, yeah, before we dive in, let's just say. Thank you for tuning into the Mod State Podcast. For more opinion pieces or some written form, go ahead and head over to modstate.com. If you want to get a hold of us, also hit us up at modstate at modstate.com. 
wherever you're listening in the world. Thank you for tuning in and now to our show. Okay, pleasantries out of the way. Um, should we save our, our uh, trivia quiz? Do we want to, do we want to, is that something towards the end we want to do or are we just feeling some good student loan energy? Do you just want to dive into student loans? Oof, I, well, what is the, what is the quiz? Uh, that's a good question. Let me see. I, I've been trying not to, I've been trying to just, you know, grab one and, uh, and just go for it. Uh, let me see. Dun, dun, dun. A name that U.S. National Park quiz. Uh, that's a picture, so that's not going to work. We did the citizenship countries and capital quizzes. That'll be a good one. Um, but we'll do that. Why don't we tee that up? Uh, do that at the end. Yeah, that works. <laughs> my brain power. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, <laughs> so when we first started having this conversation, Obviously, I think we we dove into it pretty quickly. Uh, I think what you get in precast sometimes is a, a pretty unfiltered opinion on where we stand, and I think it's important to have unfiltered conversations. And I don't mean filtered, but um, tempered. You know, I, I when we have good conversation conversations and debate around things, I'd rather us not hold back. Um, but. I was thinking, like, how do we tee this up? And I think it is important. Why are we having this conversation? Why are we kind of annoyed by the state of where we're at in a completely non-victim way? I, again, I fully Absolutely. knew. <laughs> I fully Absolutely. knew what I was getting into. Um, and, and unfortunately, I don't know that a lot of people know what they're getting into. Um, which I think is one point of contention that I have. I mean, obviously you're signing for the loans, you're doing all this stuff, mm -hmm. but I think the, as an 18 year old to be so easily get a, um, a, a loan, um, whether that's private or, um, through Mohila or through backed by the, the federal government, it's still pretty easy. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, it was really easy for me to get X amount in student loans than it was to get a, a car loan back when interest rates were zero. So definitely an interesting process there. Um, but I, I figured we'd kind of tee up some statistics, which I think are, are quid, pretty interesting because this is why we're here, right? And just some highlights. And this is um, pretty, and I'll put these in, in the show notes as well, just so, so people aren't, you know, me just making up statistics, but this comes from um, educationdatainitiative.org. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes, although you could pretty much find these um, statistics um, uh, pretty much anywhere. Uh, so the average, the average annual cost of tuition at a public four-year college is 35 times higher than tuition in 1963. Um, over the last decade, uh, tuition inflation has averaged 4.63% annually from 2010 to 2020. So that's, uh, that's pretty significant because um, that's annually. Then the cost of tuition at public four-year institutions increased 31% from 2010 to 2020. And then after adjusting for currency inflation, college tuition has increased 400, or excuse me, 747% since 1963. 
So the most extreme decade, ironically, for tuition inflation was the 1980s when tuition prices increased by 121%. So notably also to the 80s is uh, we'll talk about Reagan in a little bit. Yeah. The influence he had on that in the 80s. Yes, I'll be um, I'm actually quite uh, interested in in some of that history there. So, again, I think what's the biggest takeaway, if you're not a numbers person or just my initial glance at that, um, is that is a significant inflation number. That percentage is not trivial. That's crazy. And I think you could probably make a strange correlation to like home prices, property, property values, which I think probably and ironically will tie into the ability, I guess, the way things like property values makes it unachievable for a huge portion of the population to partake in um, the same way with student loans to a degree. Um, although student loans are more of the the price to play, right? It's the, it's the price of entry. And yeah, it, and so here we are in front of the Supreme Court uh, over the last several years, spanning two administrations, there has been a punting of turning student loans back on. So for anyone who's listening internationally, I hope you're equally as frustrated listening to this. However, um, what was done starting in the Trump administration, which I, I think is important also to understand that there was, there, there was no partisanship in terms of student loans. I think it was the right call at the right time uh, that we turned off the repayment uh, responsibility or the payment responsibility it was turned off sort of indefinitely and also no interest, the compound interest, which often happens in a U.S. student loan situation. Compound interest means that uh, un unlike a 7% interest rate on the loan for its life, it is compounding 7% until the loan is paid off. So that's what makes it so difficult uh, is that there's really no relief. It's not as if you just got rid of your interest and now you're working strictly on principle. There's always an interest attached to it um, and it be becomes so problematic. So all of that was turned off. And what we're talking about now is essentially turning them back on. And the Biden administration decided that, hey, we would like to cut 10,000 for pretty much all student loan debt carriers under $125,000 per year. That would be your income cap. And if you had Pell Grants, you were eligible for $20,000 in, in debt relief. And, and then there was a couple other proposals that actually are less talked about. And if, you, if I'm missing any of them, let me know. Um, but the two, and, and there, there may be a few more subtle ones, but the, the high level extras that actually aren't necessarily on the chopping block for the Supreme Court um, is a new a rebalancing of the income-driven repayment model. So in the past, there was, I think, a bit more variability there. So you could pay anywhere from 10% of your income back to up to like 20%, which is still pretty significant uh, that that would be, I think, what is it? Uh, cost of living, like living is supposed to be 20% of your 
your take home pay or 20% of your, your overall pay. That's what you're supposed to allocate for that. And then 20% of debt is pretty significant. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so they're going to cap that. And then the other piece is, uh, the interest. If you are making your minimum payment on income on your, on the income driven repayment model, uh, you won't accrue any interest. And I think that could easily be the, to to me personally, because 20,000 or $10,000 for me personally is great. Um, but is not as large of a percentage of the debt burden that I carry than most Americans do. And so the debt relief at 10 to 20,000 would be super significant for a number of individuals. Um, whereas I guess <laughs> grad school folks, people that have taken on a, a pretty large debt burden, just if we were just staring down the barrel of zero interest um, with, with minimum payments, I think most people are pretty okay with that. At least that would be the anecdotal experience in the circles that I run that seems fairly um, prudent. So I'll pause there. What did I miss? Um, Did we also talk about minimum wage, um, other costs of living? Well, I mean, I didn't specifically talk about minimum wage, but I think it's a good call out. You brought it up in terms of when, when we're seeing an annual rate uh, uh, increase since 2010 of like 4.5% or whatever it was, it's a good call out. Okay, so I'm working minimum wage. Here we go. So I would just like to point out that my dad went to college, he went to university in the 1960s, and he went to UT's Macomb School of Business, and he paid $400, I think, uh, a year. That have been semester a year, which is significantly less now. But when you adjust it for inflation and you look at someone working a minimum wage job, let's say in the 1980s, because that's when a lot of the conversation about this starts. It was minimum wage was three dollars and ten cents, which is equivalent to twelve dollars today. So minimum wage was twelve dollars. And we haven't raised our minimum wage from what is it? Seven twenty five. Correct. Since 2009, when I was in high school. <laughs> Correct. Which is a significant, that's just over, you know, or just well, over half, I guess. Yeah. Well, and you think, I, I think some states have done a good job of recognizing. Um, of meeting that for but, sure. But, but I'll still... say I live in Texas and they have not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think we could probably create a pretty strong political uh, state line map in terms of who has raised minimum wage and who has not, who's done a good job and who hasn't. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, Texas would very clearly fall on my list of a state that probably hasn't really adjusted that minimum wage. But that's important, right? Because it, it, what it's showing us is that, um, and again, I teed this up that I am not here to sound like a victim and I hear myself talking about it, but it really is just the state of affairs. And that is you could, you could do more in that time on a minimum wage um, salary or a minimum wage wage than, than you can today. I mean, that's just the reality. And I, we've talked about this quite a bit on this show because there are, there are times I think we've opined for. And, but I think different groups of people opine for different time periods for different reasons. Uh, mine is that, that I am getting quite a different ROI from student loans, from 
20, 30, 40 years ago than I am today. Um, and it's, it's significant. So I didn't mean to cut you off <clears throat> there. I mean, it is interesting that the 80s certainly had a sky, but then again, inflation <laughs> was pretty significant through those times anyway. What was it that, that really set us off in the direction that we are going? Um, I think we've talked a couple podcasts already about isms and the changing landscape from a political perspective in a, a desire to kind of move a different direction. Uh, and that did happen around Reagan. That, that was this sort of like neoliberal shift um, in, the, in the political climate, the culture writ large. What take me there? So it was in 1965 that the federal government began guaranteeing student loans um, by banks. I guess this comes, let me see, from banks and nonprofit lenders, um, which is the FFELT or the Federal Family Education Loan. But we really see a lot of this kick off in the 80s with Reagan. And I think I'll have to pull up his name. You'll excuse me. It's a, it's a Sunday morning. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's the day of recharge for the entire week. So if you need an extra 10 seconds to find a name, we won't hold it against you, Candace. Um, but you, I mean, you have headlines where people are talking in, what is it, 1985 in this LA Times archive. Um, this article is titled, Reagan Calls Student Loan Cuts Reasonable and Just, and that some families are just going to have to make difficult adjustments. Um, but a lot of this... And was that this this kind of mind sh shift that we we need to start taking on more risk, or we need to, you know, it this, it's almost like a utilitarian approach. Like, you know what, kind of sucks to suck. Um, but what was the motivation? It it clearly was a funding, a cost. Uh, at this time, the government was trying to really cut everything they could. Um, they were, but also I'm trying to pull up the specific quote so that I don't misquote anybody. Uh, but under the Reagan administration, there was also talk about creating a we're creating a dangerous, educated proletariat. Um, well, that, that wasn't Reagan, that, was it? That comes from Roger Freeman. Okay, so in Roger 1970, Freeman. Roger Freeman, who worked for Nixon, um, revealed that the rights motivation for coming decades of attacks on higher education. And that is where you get these quotations. Um, <clears throat> I just and they saw this as leading towards fascism. Got it. We're in danger of producing an educated proletariat. That's dynamite. We have to be selective on who we allow to go to college. Oh, <laughs> so, so what, hold on, hold on. So what you're telling me is that the party of small government wants to decide who gets to and who does not get to go to university and effectively make it cost prohibitive. They couldn't have just said, Hey, we just, this is not sustainable. This price, like we have to increase the price. We have to do this now in order to fund it. And then, I mean, that, that in itself is disingenuous, but like, Oh, for sure. And it's not to say that it's one or the other, right? Like they're, but we can, I don't think we can discount the fact that from the 60s to 80s, you have a concern with 
universities being the center for civil rights movements and other forms of like I activist mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's discourse good. and to to create a system where only wealthier people which mm-hmm. you know especially at the time was mostly white you're preventing a lot of groups of people of color who can't afford it from accessing these places of activism and i don't think that was unnoticed yeah and it's it's a- not that it was the the main intention or the main the driving reason for it but i don't think we can discount that yeah i mean it it would seem kind of overtly classist and and racist in some cases and so it would be hard to lead with that Although I guess at the time, what so Reagan in '66, um, so he had, he won in '66. This was in California as a governor, and was immediately started to get pretty confrontational with the University of California school system. And then in the oh yeah, in, where he vowed to clean up the mess. <laughs> yeah, in 1970, he shut down all the UC and Cal state campuses um, Mm -hmm. in midst of there was some student protesting for the Vietnam war and U S bombing Cambodia. So right off the bat, you can see um, (laughs) you can see where this is going. So that is where Roger Freeman came in his education advisor. um, Yep. And you're right. And he said, we're in danger of producing an educated proletariat. Just to back that up. There was a an FBI memo at that time where he cracked down on UC that said Reagan was dedicated to the destruction of disruptive elements on California campuses. Mm. Freeman also said, taking a highly idiosyncratic perspective on the cause of fas- fascism, that's what happened in Germany, and I saw it. We will have a large number of highly trained and unemployed people. That was... The claim, which is interesting, right? So at that time, would there have been more of those quote unquote traditional like white collar jobs? I, I guess maybe not. There's certainly but but this was coming out of the, the World War Two, so we had the um we we did have free public education for GIs that came back. Pretty like pretty broad socialist type policies that the veil was, it is our troops, it is our, our boys, we're going to take care of them. I mean, we had VA loans for housing, education. I mean, there's a host of really social kind of programs that I think resonated strongly with a lot of Americans because these guys were heroes. They were the greatest generation, um, and so it made sense. Um, but then you think, so that's... 1945, 1955. Now this is 20 years post and all of a sudden there's this fundamental shift. Now we're in the Vietnam War, totally not popular, not the greatest generation. And you've got all these darn kids not liking the fact that we're bombing Cambodia. Um, Right. So they must be (laughs) overeducated. So, so here we are. And, and, and I don't think it's necessarily your opinion, but this is your tee up here. Like this is Reagan, um, in California going to kind of battle with uh, um, with college campuses, with uh, students. And all of a sudden we have this highly classist comment by the kind of the Betsy DeVos uh, of the time. Uh, I mean, yeah. to be fair, his vice president also made comments um, along similar lines. It's, it's actually pretty interesting when you go back and, maybe this is a departure of what you were going to say, but when you, when you really dig into the principles of, we think of Reagan, Reagan is 
um, he's like the father of modern neoliberalism, which is really more like the, the figurehead of a cycle of a type of conservatism that happens. We'll come back at some point. It will manifest itself as something else in the future. I truly believe, and it's only my opinion, I am not an expert, so no one take this super uh, to heart, but we will ebb and flow with the role of the federal government in -hmm. our lives. And again, FDR was a framework, and then Reagan became a framework. For example, Clinton was a Democratic president. But he was just as equally into cutting government spending, uh, maybe probably a bit less than other uh, uh, Republican mm-hmm. um, presidents at the time. But it still operated under this framework. And this was the beginning of this new framework. Yeah. And, and I just, <laughs> go ahead. You know, we talk about frameworks and cycles, but I also like highlighting when we talk about history is that this was just the 70s and 80s. I mean, our, the, our parents and grandparents, the people who are still in government and in power today, like they lived this. It's the same people. So I don't want to disconnect what happened at this time from sentiments that will still exist today inside the same human beings, because it wasn't just Reagan. I mean, so you have Spiro Agnew saying unqualified students are being swept into college on the wave of the new socialism. You have conservative intellectuals also upset about this because free education may be producing a positively dangerous class situation by raising working class expectations. Um, Another refers to students as a parasite feeding on the rest of society who exhibit a failure to understand and to appreciate the crucial role played by the reward punishment structure of the market. Jesus. So, yeah, it's. It's more than just Reagan and the Reagan administration, right? These are people who still, you know, vote and create policy today. What? And and I don't think and I and I'm pointing this out not to say this is the reason for all of this. But within that context, you have, at least from what I see, a similar thing happening now where there is a concern with how educated, uh, progressive campuses are so it, it, and student bodies. Yeah. So what you're basically the undertones or reading between the lines here is that this idea of academia being these bastions of liberal progressive mm-hmm. thought, it, it really is almost like a, uh, <laughs> a roundabout way of saying like, we don't really want that. And I would think so. And, and to back that up, I would say a good uh, documentary y'all can go watch. And this is not higher education, but it still speaks to this system of you know, how this happens is go watch The Revisionaries. I think that the full version is up for free on YouTube. And it's a documentary about the public education system in Texas and how Texas uh, Board of Education and the curriculum they choose determines what a lot of the rest of the country studies. And it's about the fight between creationism and evolution and how to teach that in schools. Do you think, I mean, it's funny you bring that up because I actually remember reading about the fight between creationism and uh, evolution in my ninth grade biology class in public school. Right. And, and that really 
I'm sure there's been fights in education and what we're teaching people and probably more like who can get educated and who can't get educated. Um, and then all of a sudden there's this direct policy, uh, a fight in terms of how we would be talking about science. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, anyway, didn't mean to cut you off on that, but no, it's for sure true. So just within the context of talking about student loans and possible solutions, right. For the situation that we are in now, I think it's very important that people take these perspectives into account when determining whose responsibility it is to fix certain aspects of this crisis and whose responsibility it is to burden or, you know, to take on the burden of paying back this debt. And to speak to that point, there was one article from, I think it was actually on Fox. So I'll just say I was reading through the it was an editorial opinion on Fox talking about the problem. And again, if I've misquoted myself, don't worry, I'll find the article and put it in the show notes. But their problem with this student debt crisis, the crisis was that people were not going to be paying back these loans because they get forgiven after 20, 25 years. So their concern was not with the burden on students having to pay these back. And their concern was also with the fact that there was a an income-based payment plan at all. And there was no concern taken in, you know, no concern with the fact that a lot of people cannot afford to pay back their loans without an income-based repayment plan, simply because wages have not kept up with. Again, we're talking about minimum wage, which is just over half of what it was. Correct. In in what, 1980? Yeah. Right. So minimum wage has essentially gone down. Mm -hmm. So it, I, I, I want to pull on some threads that you left. Oh, absolutely. And, and I got more to say on the topic, but let's pull on the threads. We'll see if we get to the same place. OK, so I, I, I wanted to make sure that before we kind of deep dive on the SCOTUS case and continue to, to go down the path you're going down, that from a demographic perspective on where we are today, what who is affected? And also, really more broadly, like the population breakdown in the U.S. and why, I guess, maybe my thoughts, and I'll be curious on yours. Because um, we, we talked about, obviously, the fundamental issue of payment. We've talked about class. We've talked about how it was teed up in the past, whether that was truly how they felt or not. That's certainly what was messaged. <laughs> and it isn't great. If that's what they were messaging <laughs> and what they were thinking, if they're two different things, I'd maybe not want to know what they were thinking although I could, I could think about a couple of things. So um, from a 30,000-foot view in America today, um, is, the, is it necessary that we have all these people going to college? Um, so the, the flip side is, do we need bachelor degrees for every entry-level job um, out there? Um, so that's one question. Is it really fundamentally that important? Well, I guess I would probably argue on that one I don't know how much control the government has or anyone has on at this point needing a, an entry level for your college degree for some jobs that don't necessarily pay that much. But it's just the nature of it's like a byproduct of the system. Right. And I don't think anyone can wave a magic wand and say that all of these uh, 20 million jobs out there. Um, we'll just no longer need a degree in order to um, 
in, in order to have that job. So my question is, what is the actual need for college? What we do know is that university does lift uh, people and does create wealth over time. That isn't just for one set demographic group. Um, it Just broadly, if you get a four-year degree or any sort of college degree, it's going to bring you up to that next level of jobs that you're available for. <clears throat> one argument that I hear a lot is um, we, uh, you know, we do need, we do need uh, blue collar jobs for, for what it's worth. We do need, but you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I would argue, I think we need to make those jobs more attractive, but the reality is from a libertarian perspective, you're going to do your own thing. The military is not for everybody. And, and it takes a special person to get your, your health, or excuse me, well, your health care, but also your, your student loans paid for by the military. It takes a special person, and not everyone should do that. Um, not everyone's cut out for federal government service or state-level civic like duty service. Um, in fact, there's not enough jobs for everybody to do that. So even in the military and then working for the federal government or the state-local government is still not achievable for most people. and then. Not everyone's cut out to be an electrician, a plumber, uh, or on, on a factory line or a metal worker or a mill worker. Like, not everyone's cut out to do that. And the whole point of that, too, is there is still a debt increment that a lot of those people are going to get. I look at being a medical assistant, right? That is a great entry-level job in healthcare, and some people make fantastic careers doing that. It still costs $15,000 to get that. So. It, Absolutely. It really doesn't Absolutely. matter what you do unless, and then, okay, so, okay, so then the difference is you're just an entrepreneur, and so you incur a, a business loan as opposed to a student loan, right? So there's always going to be a cost <clears throat> to whatever you want to do, and for most people, I'm going to say most people, that's generalizing, a launching off to get an advanced degree greater than a GED or a high school diploma is what is going to open the world up for them. And so I think it's disingenuous when we say, oh, you can find something um, without going to school. That just is not true for most people um, and is completely disingenuous. So I just wanted to make sure <clears throat> I threw that out there. Um, and, and again, I'm pulling at some threads you're saying, I, I do want to circle back. But the other piece that I wanted to say is that this is going to affect like 43 million people. 20 million will have their debt erased. Um, and it will cost somewhere around 400 billion over the next three decades. <laughs> so to, to pull at these threads some more, um, I do want to go on to say that one of the biggest issues I have is with determining like who's burdened by this. And this, you know, the person who wrote this article was so concerned that people would have their debt written off after 20 years and then it would become the debt, you know, the burden of taxpayers. And I'm just looking at this thinking, sir, who do you think taxpayers are? So when you look at student loans, you have the burden of the actual debt. You have the burden of the interest on this debt. And you also have the debt as a taxpayer of previous student student loans. So these the people paying back their loans now with this interest are concurrently at the same time also burdening the student debt that people have already stopped paying on. Mm -hmm. So it's right they they're already taking on this burden. Correct. Right so at reduced you know wages 
and inflated prices of living across the board. So I do have to say we I think it's fair to take that into account. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not in the camp that people shouldn't have to pay back their student loans. We Absolutely. did. Right. But I think that there it's. It's a larger picture than just saying, oh, we took out the loan. We're responsible for paying it back. We need mm-hmm. to look at the cost of tuition and what's allowed it to get quite so high, because I can tell you right now it's not going to paying most faculty or staff uh, income yeah. or salaries. And uh, Yeah, I mean, I think we, I certainly acknowledge, and you do, when every, everyone is having the discussion about, about reducing the debt burden, right? I think when we talk about reducing the debt burden or begin talking about it, uh, in a way that isn't as if like, hey, we should just take full responsibility for the loans that we've taken out. <clears throat> um, but I, I do acknowledge that it may sound like I, I'm giving handouts or something like that, but that's really not the case. I don't, I don't have, again, I'm not an expert here. I don't have a whole lot of um, great solutions to cut the fat, cut the cost. I think that's a great policy conversation for an absolute expert. <clears throat> but I I think what, and I think you're probably saying the same thing. This is the model we have. Like university is going to be a path for a lot of people. And I completely disagree with Freeman. I think an educated population is a way better population. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and espouse the, uh, the, you know, why everyone should have higher education as, as if you can't be like a moral smart person without a, without a higher education. That's not the case. It just is proven in our society that it is important broadly for many reasons, including wage, right? We've touched, we've touched on this before. And I want to point out that I, I do not align with educated elite mentalities, but I do think that creating access for anyone who wants it to, you know, access education is beneficial to society as a whole. Correct. But it is not beneficial for certain groups in pulling the wool over other people's eyes. Because if you can control the information that they know or that they believe is true, it's much easier to get them to vote or support you in the ways that they would prefer. Yep. And yeah. so so yeah. let's. I think this is going to open up a little bit more conversation in terms of maybe the the partisan divide on on the idea of student loan forgiveness. Um, and so I do not I don't want to miss the SCOTUS case and why we're talking about this specifically, um, <clears throat> because here we are fundamentally uh, or having a fundamental conversation about you know is this a good thing is this a bad thing and I think we could easily find <laughs> at least the plaintiffs in this case. Uh, found that they were they were going to be severely hurt from this from this program uh, or doing this uh, on top of just whether or not it it was um, within the right of the Biden administration to do this anyway, um, which I think was a pretty compelling uh, case made by one of the liberal justices. Um, so, <clears throat> what basically they're hearing two challenges to this plan. So one involves six Republican-led states that sued, um, and the other, the, you know, obviously the plaintiff, the, the, the lawyers needed, uh, needed some people. So they found two students. Uh, the lower court dismissed the lawsuit involving the following states, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. Again, we're already seeing sort of the partisan divide here. You don't see 
um, uh, you can see Colorado on there. The court said the states could not challenge the program because they weren't harmed by it. <laughs> so, okay, that's what we've got to go find. We've got to go find someone. Uh, and in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Eighth Circuit, of note, were uh, appointed by Republican presidents, put the program on hold during the appeal. Um, <clears throat> so then we have these two students, Myra Brown, um, who's ineligible for debt relief because her loans are commercially held, and then Alexander Taylor, who's eligible for 10000 but not the full twenty, um, and so he feels harmed by that. Um, and then, uh, they, you know, they say the Biden administration didn't go through the proper process and here we are. We're at the Supreme Court, um, and there, the the piece here is the Heroes Act. So the the one of the conversations is, hey, uh, were you guys actually harmed by this? And a good call out by, um, in fact, one of the conservative justices was so Mohila is an arm, uh, essentially is. Everyone who has student loans knows Mohila. That is where most of your federal loans are processed, housed. Um, you, and if there's anyone that would be financially worse off by having absolution of student debt, it would be Mohila. Well, guess who didn't come to the table as a plaintiff uh, in, uh, in this situation? It was Mohila. And in fact, um, Amy Coney Barrett actually brought that up, although the major question then again is with this Supreme Court, it's okay, is it a states' rights thing? Uh, is it a congressional thing? And I think a lot of people are sort of upset that they're kind of cherry picking who and when is affected and who should have the rights to oversee this. When the Heroes Act, the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Student Act, commonly known as the Heroes Act, was enacted after um, September 11th and was initially intended to keep service members from being worse off financially when they went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, which makes sense, right? So, um, and it, it is extended to allow the Secretary of Education to waive or modify the terms of federal loans um, as necessarily, student loans, sorry, as necessary in connection with a national emergency. Well, COVID-19, wherever you line up, uh, politically was a national emergency one way or another. Um, and so the case is being made that this is a national emergency and that under this HEROES Act, the uh, Department of Education and uh, the President of the United States who oversees that, that department is able to do that. And I think it was Kagan was like, I don't, some of this stuff is really cloudy and that's why it comes up to us to set a precedent. But this is about as clear of an executive um, uh, within the scope of the executive branch as possible. And there is this kind of counter argument from the right leaning side of the bench that says, well, I mean, this is what, what do they call it? The questions, major questions. They're like, I don't know. You know, maybe this is something Congress should really hash out and at which we know nothing's going to happen there. So it, it's pretty convenient that this as you know, because it was originally for war and COVID's not war, it really doesn't fit quite into that definition. Although Kagan saying, yeah, it does. I mean, it, it is, uh, it fits like a glove. Um, and here we are. Um, there's also another piece of this and just jump in here if I'm <clears throat> off base, mm -hmm. but um, the other component to this is whether or not these two individuals are actually, and, and really in general, every one of the plaintiffs 
is actually in a position to make a case against themselves. And if that is the case, then this whole thing gets tossed um, and, and we can move on. So there's a couple, one thing you notice here is that, um, one thing to notice here is that the other components to this are not in it. So interest rates and, um, some of the income, uh, driven repayment stuff, but really this resolves around debt itself. So what am I missing from this case? There's maybe some subtle nuances that I've missed that are important, but that's sort of why we're at why we're having this conversation. And um, my question for you is, what do you think happens here? So I wouldn't be surprised if um, I guess this was struck down, and which doesn't help me, right? So I do understand that it would be great if I could keep twenty thousand off you know, kick 20,000 off my loans. But I also understand that it, it really is a band-aid, right? If they, if they allow us to stay in place and great, we get 20,000, 10,000 off our loans, everything else that goes with that. It is a band-aid, right? We still have the same system that we're struggling with. Um, and I mean, I'm not quite sure what else to where else to go from there yeah specifically on what happens with the with scotus right because i think it's a much larger issue than just, just the scotus case and it, it kind of makes me sad that we're quite we're still so limited in our scope when we're talking mm-hmm. about this it should be a much larger conversation yeah <laughs> well and, and i do agree i mean I, I don't think anyone disagrees that there is massive reform needed in the education system in general right I think there's, so there's that, there's that like policy wonk side of this where it says like, how do we fix this? Um, and look, if we don't get 10 or 20,000, I think the, the, the executive branch will do some smart things in, in, like I've already teed it up. I've said it 10 times already between interest rates, um, and income driven repayment models. Um, and, and beyond that, I don't have, I mean, we can definitely, we can definitely kind of open up the, the latter part of this conversation in terms of like why. Uh, the things that are frustrating about university itself and then just what I think is sort of an America first model um, and could flip the script on how we think about university. Um, but again, I, again, I don't have great solutions, but I also believe that the, as we sort of self-actualize as a society, as our democracy continues to go through um, its ebbs and flows and it's, it's being tested, um, there's, there's so many things that are going on in our, our country today that are creating unrest, right? That it, it isn't some, some uh, enemy across the, the ocean. It's, it's COVID. It is class. It's all these things that make people angry. And I think being angry about this is interesting. Ultimately, well, I- <clears throat> go, go ahead. I, I, I do see a an opportunity here, though, right? A lot of what we've been talking about is this kind of pull between needing an educated, like a higher education educated population and a lack of blue collar workers. But I also see this as trade school costs anywhere from five to fifteen thousand dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, we talked about you're still a, 
accruing a debt. Yeah. But we also had a reduction in the amount of, I guess, factory, blue collar, manufacturing jobs in the U.S. But with bringing, I guess, chip facilities and other sorts of manufacturing back to the U.S., there's an opportunity here to bolster that portion of the population. So you mm-hmm. won't have quite as much of a burden with people trying to go and get a college education because there will be an opportunity to get right. a job that pays enough Correct. without I, doing so. And I think before there wasn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, if we think about good jobs, making good money in a job that maybe traditionally doesn't pay the same as it did, you know, 30 years ago. Um, It, it was the same administration that sort of paved the road for sending jobs overseas for cheaper labor, right? So um, there's a better bang for your buck on capital, right? And that wasn't happening in the US. And so if there's less manufacturing jobs, there's less of all this, what, what are people going to do? I mean, a higher education is clearly like a viable path forward with a much costlier ROI. And this boils down to, I think you're kind of leading into what I was going to say in terms of how are we like, we? I feel like we're still half of us are living in sort of this Freeman model, right? Where it's like, you know what, if you can't pay for it, don't do it. Um, if you don't want to pay it back, don't do it. X, Y, and Z. It's it's it maybe is a different kind of uh, <laughs> argument. I, but I I do want to call out though that a lot of the people saying, well, if you can't afford it, don't do it, are the same ones who are creating a situation where you go and you get a master's degree, and the only opportunity is you have to go get an an unpaid internship for two years to have enough work experience. <laughs> you have to have the bachelor's, the master's, and the unpaid internship before they will allow you access to a just above poverty line wage for a decade <laughs> yeah, where I they mean, can fire you at any point. So I will have to say, I'm going to call them out because you can't, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Fair. And sir, I don't really care <laughs> about you accruing more wealth when most of us, I think if it is over half of the U S population that lives just above the poverty line, mm-hmm. I think poverty lines like 31, 32,000 and like half of the U S or like the, the mode not the average. It's like what 38, $35,000, $38,000 dollars a year. Yeah. So the, most of the most of the US population lives just above mm-hmm. poverty line. So I've just been beating around the bush and what I what I'm trying to say and I think you um like likely uh, would agree with um is that education given the trajectory that we are going currently uh, in the US is an America first policy. Mm-hmm. It is. And it I is. see it, I see it manifest in an interesting way um, in healthcare. So, um, and we, we do rely in our healthcare system on what people would consider um, uh, doctors coming in from abroad or nurses coming in from abroad. And there's huge programs right now in the nursing field um, of bringing nurses in from the Philippines and from Mexico and fast tracking visas and green cards in order to fulfill a really important role in our healthcare system. 
Now, I am thankful for every single one of them. As someone who's in healthcare, it's not about them, and I'm not trying to be ethnocentric about it, but it's it's sort of it points to a larger problem uh, that there are uh, American citizens lining up to want to you know go into the nursing field, for example, and part of that is it's I think the fact that the cost itself is incidental. It's it like doesn't matter because it. You, you just are going to incur X amount of debt for uh, this job. It's just sort of what is going to happen. There's no way around it. Um, yet it's sort of like we, here's, there's definitely a problem, right? Like we are bringing in labor and, and professionals from abroad. Um, and some of that is cost prohibitive too, right? For, for a lot of nurses, like it doesn't make sense to incur 20000 to $40,000 in debt. Um, and but then also there's the problem of, of faculty that aren't paid enough <laughs> that to, to make it a living or needing a PhD uh, in order to teach very fundamental classes. So there's, there, there are a number of issues, and I, I want to acknowledge that. But the point is, is I just can't think of a more America-first policy than making higher education more accessible and less cost-prohibitive. Uh, in order to advance our workforce. That's just the direction we're going. We're seeing AI, although it's narrow AI, so it's not general AI yet. But as we grow, it doesn't matter how much manufacturing we get bring back. Um, capitalism is not into handouts, right? We're not going to just create manufacturing jobs <clears throat> that we're going to fill with as many bodies as we can. There's going to be like this is business, right? We're going to do You want to know who they're going to hire for these positions? They're going to hire the people who are the most educated and who can create the most profit. And then when it comes to skilled or or so that that um uh, the our manuf- those who are working on the manufacturing line, those I mean that it it just even with the whole framework of wages and being able to have that, that stuff just isn't that attractive. Um, yet it should be because there's a huge portion of the population that we really need to do those jobs. I mean, this sounds like coldly economic when you think of like economists, we're talking about almost people as widgets, but from a 30,000 foot view, you do have to think about your workforces and your labor forces and who's doing what job. I mean, I just don't see us returning, ever returning to a time where uh, manufacturing was broadly accepted as like a great career path in the US. I just don't see that happening unless there's a huge change in China. Um, But I don't think companies are dying unless there's some policy at the federal level that says you can't, which would be crazy, um, you'll, you will continue to see this, cap, this human capital shift and it will be overseas mm-hmm. and will continue to be that way. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what changes, Candace. Like, what changes? Is that a fundamental shift in how like, policy well, this and is, government or... This is an interesting point that you bring up at this time because what is it? Um, G7 just got surpassed by what Saudi and Iran signing. Um, oh, we're China mediated. Uh, mm-hmm, they're they're mm-hmm. going to bring embassies back over the next mm-hmm. couple. And now what it's, it's Russia, China, India, Saudi, and Iran have like surpassed the U S Europe and Canada in like GDP. 
I mean, but you also see, I think it's with, I think it's with parts of Apple's manufacturing process. Um, just from like a tech standpoint, there's security of like technology, like copyright and patents. So, I mean, that's another reason that they're bringing manufacturing back is because China mm. wants to stipulate how the process goes, stipulate who has access to the technology. Correct. There's security concerns as who has access to the, you know, Apple's they, patents. They essentially they're get saying, a cut. Oh, yeah, they're like, oh, you have to turn a blind eye to what we're doing here or we're not going to let you check out your, you know, assembly line process here. So I think there are going to be certain things that put a pressure on U.S. companies to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. or to Mexico, because I think it's actually Mexico. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Mexico right now is cheaper labor than China. I'm so sure. Far as shipping, shipping costs, well, labor, I mean, manufacturing, the whole process. Yeah, I was going to say from cheaper. the entire supply line from <clears throat> yeah. from from uh, your resources through it landing on the shelves. Uh, yeah, and. Again, I, I, I want to shy away from appearing ethnocentric here. I think it isn't necessarily what I want, or it's just the reality of what is happening. And if, um, it, it like like you're pointing out, like if, if this stuff doesn't rectify, if our uh, offshoring human capital for cheaper our cheaper product, um, like the reality is, if we can't make it cheaper, uh, it's not going to be cheaper, right? It's going to be more expensive if we do bring it back. And, and so I want to acknowledge what would happen if, if you know, we could bring manufacturing back and, and we, we could create these jobs um, for uh, individuals who don't want to go to college or go to a trade school, but it's going to cost more. We're already saying like minimum wage hasn't been increased since. And it takes time. And it does take time. It costs more and it takes time. So, but I still don't believe, um, and this, this may, um, this is where the, we leave it for like the hour mark for my more political opinions to come out here. But when we talk about America first, like this is the trajectory we were going. This is our self-actualized democracy utilizing technology in a good way will essentially make it. Um, you'll just never have the factory lines the way you had with Ford and the Model T back in the day. That just is not going to exist. It's going to be robots and it's going to be AI. Um, And people who are going to take care of that technology are going to need some sort of advanced education in order to use that. So it really doesn't matter. Education is not going away. Uh, And the need for it is not going away. But I do want to touch on something before we finish to that exact point is it is the cost of education, right? Everyone's concerned with how much can you take off what people already owe, but that doesn't prevent people from accruing just as much debt in the future. And it's because of the, I'm sorry, it is price gouging the cost of education. And if they can put a cap on how much nurses can earn after COVID, I mean, they said, well, you can't raise nurse like wages, then I'm, you can go ahead and put a, a wage or a cap on the cost of education. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm, the president of university does not mean to be making millions of dollars a year while they fire tenure professors and hire back on underpaid adjuncts. Yeah, I mean, while still charging people twenty to forty thousand dollars a year. I was going to say it, it is sort. Of, no, no, no. I mean, it is. It's sort of that. It, it is. Look again. This is not crapping on capitalism, but it is. Like, what can we do? No, but it's, preemptively reduce 
the debt that's going to accrue. Correct. Preemptive. Yeah. It just, it, th- there's many things that need to happen. And the, 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 the overall question is, you know, what does the SCOTUS, what do they do here? I, I, honestly, I think, I think the debt, I, I, I just, I think it's not on the table. <clears throat> I think yeah. the, I think the Supreme court axes that and sends it back to Congress. And I hope that the other pieces of this program move forward for the good of the American people, quite frankly. Um, I, I, I just see education as a, I, I truly do as a path forward for a lot of people and not everyone. And for those of us who are against having any conversation about relief from debt, uh, you know, I, I don't know where that comes from. I don't, like you said before, the nuts and bolts that we're ultimately all paying for this anyway. It's like the argument, oh, well, you get your, you get your, uh, the taxpayers pay your, um, paid my salary as an army officer. Well, you're correct, but I also paid for my own salary. So in, in, yeah. in essence, like you could actually adjust my paycheck as someone in the army and just reduce whatever my, um, whatever I paid into it. And that's actually what I'm actually paying because I'm actually taking a cut every single paycheck from the taxes that I pay in, albeit not that much, but that's the point, right? Like we all are paying into an existing, uh, healthcare, uh, you know, like Mm -hmm. everyone is paying into our healthcare system. Everyone is going to pay. And, and it's, it's disingenuous. I think really to, to, to say like, this is going to be my burden. It, we're already paying for it. Uh, taxes, taxes aren't going up. Um, taxes aren't going down. You're going to continue to say, pay the same in taxes. Uh, and, and this is going to, over the next like, really long time, will be paid off like $4 billion, which, again, just for context, we spend $800 billion a year on defense alone. We spend, I just think, I agree with Republicans. I do. I say we need to, we need to, if not cut costs, we need to really dive in and figure out uh, where we can, we can be more efficient. We can be more productive. I totally agree with all of that. But in the grand scheme of all the money we have paid to corporations, to uh, tax cuts, which have just not benefited the middle class um, in the crazy amounts of money that we gave out during the pandemic to everyone that wasn't just an individual uh, not owning a business. All that money that we've given and we're, we're concerned about $400 billion over, yeah. what was it? Uh, three decades. It, yeah. it, it, to, and to me, it's, it's true. It, and I don't want to drag this out too much longer, but I think this might be the topic for another episode is this does not happen in a vacuum. And when you also look at the public education system and the, look at how many school districts are going to have to start shutting down or going to reduce days because they can't afford to pay, afford to pay teachers. So you have students leaving 12 years of public education just unprepared. Imagine if you reduce the cost, all the money that the federal government was paying in loans towards higher education was reduced. I mean, quite honestly, force universities to cap tuition. There is no reason to pay $70,000 a year for some degrees to a university Mm -hmm. and reallocate that federal money towards public education. 
And if you can educate the public effectively over 12 years, you're also going to reduce the need for people to continue with higher education. Mm. Yep, I, I absolutely agree. And I think what we need to tee up for the next part of this series, and maybe I'll, I'll go back and tee this up as like part one of student loans, is like, why do we have, because there, there's, a, there's a fiscal like responsibility, conservatism here. Like I get that. I do. I manage P&Ls. <laughs> that is part of my job. I, mm-hmm. am, I am graded on that, right? That is like fundamentally. Oh, I get it. I get it. I do a similar thing. So I (laughs) like 100% agree, um, like with being smart. Um, but here we are saying like, well, one side is being super unsmart, $400 billion over 30 years. I mean, this is pennies compared to what we've spent over the last, since 2008, right? It's pennies. Um, And so what I want to dive into next is what are the real reasons public education? So we, I mean, we think of, and we're going to have, this is why I think we needed to have more conversations about it. We're looking at Ron DeSantis in Florida, who is fundamentally trying to uh, change public school, um, school choice, like all this stuff. Like, is it, is, is the price of it or giving some sort of relief and debt relief to, to 20 million plus Americans, 43. Is it really about the money or is it really about something else? And I, I do think going back to Freeman's original quote that uh, an educated proletariat is um, going to be the downfall. So we can't do it. I, I do believe that there's some undercurrent that has continued to today. Um, and I think like ideology plays a role into it, both political, cultural, and religious ideology plays a role into public education and just sort of the fear around, I mean, it's just been ongoing, right? Since evolution um, became a thing. So I think we do have an opportunity to talk about this a bit more and, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm kind of excited about it. So me too. I would, I would ask that everyone who listens to, you know, past the hour, please watch the revisionaries before we pick up next episode, because I think that'll frame a lot of this pretty well. I agree. Okay. Passing so, out homework. <laughs> passing out homework. Okay. I'm going to hop off. So let's, um, we have, we have 16 questions for our quiz. Um, I did, I was going to do capitals, but now we're going to do slang through the ages vocabulary quiz on Britannica.com. Uh, so put on your slang. Uh, here we go. Uh, essential to the 1980s Valley Girl lexicon, grody is synonymous with that word or phrase, tight-fitting, disgusting, high in calories, or delicious. Gross. Disgusting. Uh, so uh, Frank Zappa, uh, in his hit song Valley Girl in 1983, and his 14-year-old daughter, Moon Unit, the word grody became a hallmark of the 1980s mall scene. Taken from a French term for middle class, which of these mildly mocking terms for being concerned about wealth and respectability, bougie, it's bougie. It's bougie. (laughs) I I was looking for proletariat. I was like, wait, that would have been funny. Those proties. (laughs) Okay. Um, Which of these people would most likely be described as a Weisenheimer, a bully, a smart aleck, a baby, or a bank clerk? You Weisenheimer? Smart I don't want right? to touch this one. <laughs> Smart Alec. 
appeared early 20th century. Wise Weisenheimer combined the word wise with Inheimer, a reference to a smart sounding German family name. Okay. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you wise guy. All right. Criminals going for a stay in the Husgo are about to spend time where? A cheap motel, a hideout, jail, or near a house they're looking to rob? Jail. A Husgow. Husgow, yep. Is a corruption of the Spanish term juzgado, which means a panel of judges or a courtroom. Okay. Uh, kids in the 1970s were labeled space cadets if they were overachieving, forgetful, nerdy, or bad smelling. Forgetful. Forgetful space cadet. Okay. That's, that, that's that me. One, that, that one has um, stood the test of time so far. Um, so before it was used, referring to someone whose mind was of in outer space in 1948, sci-fi author Robert Heinlein wrote Space Cadet about a character who hoped to achieve the titular rank of Space Cadet. Okay. Which of these animal names is slang for pretending to be a different person online? Skunk, butterfly, chameleon, or catfish? Catfish. Boom. Got that modern, modern culture. All right. Which of these flavorful words is synonymous with angry and bitter? Salty, savory, sugary, spicy. Ooh, is it salty, <laughs> salty. or spicy? It's Salt. salty. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, although salty has enjoyed a linguistic resurgence, the usage was first recorded in African-American newspapers in the 1930s. Hmm. <clears throat> Thanks, Britannica. Which, what sort of person would be described as the bee's knees? Extremely thin, overly judgmental, highly admired, or a compulsive liar? Highly admired. Highly admired. She's just great. She's Others crazy. include the cat's meow, the ant's pants, and the eel's ankles. <laughs> Dude, I'm bringing back the, the ant's the pants. <laughs> I like the ant's pants better than the bee's knees. You're just the, you're just the ant's pants. Oh. Yeah, the eel's ankles. I don't, under, the eels, I don't understand where that one came from. That one's pretty interesting. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same way. Okay. Um, it doesn't make any sense. If you've been hornwoggled, you've been deceived by a fraud, getting high grades in school, smitten by a love interest, or made muscular by with weightlifting. I think you've been deceived by a fraud. I think you have been deceived. Yep. Experts are absolutely flummoxed is how hornswoggle entered into the English language, only noting that it originated in the southern United States during the 19th century. Okay, almost done. If you are giving someone the side eye, what are you doing? Flirting, looking at them scornfully, checking out their valuables, or sneaking a peek at them? I think it's looking at looking them scornfully. Looking at them scornfully. Yeah, okay. That's right. Uh, cool. During which activity would someone most likely yell YOLO? Playing a, playing a board game, being audited, ordering fast food, or skydiving? <laughs> being audited, no skydiving. <laughs> YOLO. All right. Probably sky- being audited as well. <laughs> skydiving is correct couple more questions a person in the 1830s going to see the sawbones was going where Ooh, to a surgeon to a trainer to a theatrical performance or to the butcher oh to a surgeon you think also a butcher which one <laughs> is surgeon oh that is correct um oof. i mean sawbones how about just they would to the corner they would that's probably what happened after you saw sawbones yeah a little bit yes, of exactly. Um, all right. Since the 1840s, which of these has been known as ankle biters? Mob enforcers, snakes, young children, or poison ivy leagues? Young children. You are correct. Uh, in addition to describing rugrats, ankle biters, 
an aggressive, it also sometimes meant to mean aggressive small dog. Um, a term originating from the game among us, sus is short for what? Suspender, suspicious, sustain, or sushi uh, among us. Suspicious. Correct. Good job. Um, and Thank almost you. done. Usually more graceful than something with hooves. A hoofer is what type of professional? A dancer, a reporter, a butcher, or a doctor? A dancer. Dude, we might have gone 100%. Okay, last one. Inspired by how the actor Humphrey Bogart smoked cigarettes, to Bogart something means what? To pretend to enjoy, to use only a little, to not share, or to consume quickly? Consume quickly. Uh, to not mm-hmm. share. Wow. Oh, Star of classic films such as Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart often would keep a cigarette dangling between his lips until the cigarette was almost gone. Bogarting became slang for consuming something without sharing. Thanks to this usage in the 1969 film Easy Rider. All right. <clears throat> Shame on me. How, how could you not? Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, much appreciated. I thought this was a good show. I, again, I do think we, we, start, we continue to talk about this. Obviously, the case will come out um, or, or they'll, they'll make a ruling on it. And I think there'll be some broader conversation. Obviously, student loans are turning back on. I think that's something we should talk about soon in terms of what that looks like and our predictions broadly <laughs> across the U.S. And, and what that's going to do. I can tell you, I guarantee most people haven't been thinking about student loans turning back on. Um, if we don't have any sort of finance class ever uh, in public education, the idea that 43 million people have been budgeting for their student loans to turn back on in August seems unlikely. unlikely. So um, I, think, I think we've got some subsequent awesome episodes. So as always, thank you for being here again with me. We'll put the show notes in. As always, if you have any comments, hit us up at monstate at monstate.com or leave your comments wherever you can where you're listening to your podcast. We thank podomatic.com. And of course you, Candace. thank you for being with me on this Sunday. So thank you, Nate. until next time, we'll see ya.